Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight we're, we're starting a new series based on the uh, seventh book of the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Uh, if you do have a Bible with you, can I invite you to uh, turn to the first chapter? It's page 242. Uh, of the Bibles in the pews. It would be really handy if if everyone could see a copy uh, of the Bible because we're sort of going to be jumping about a bit this evening. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this book or its contents, but let me encourage you to do something, a bit of a challenge for the week week ahead. Uh, Can I encourage you to find time this week to read through its 21 chapters in one sitting? It'll take you about 45 minutes to an hour maximum. And if you choose to do that, uh, please be prepared to be shocked. Caution is required. In fact, if you are easily offended, it's probably better not to read through Judges. Because one of the most striking features about this book is the horrendous level of bloodshed that you encounter. Four verses in, have a look. And you read that 10,000 men are wiped out. And by verse 8, an entire city, Jerusalem, is put to the sword. Number of casualties unknown. And what makes this even more difficult to comprehend is the discovery that God not only allows it, but often God seems to sanction it. Again, look at verse 4 says that God gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into Judah's hands. And so to many modern readers, Judges is unacceptable. It's unpalatable. Although, and, and this is an interesting thought, why is it that 21st century people, including those who attend church, seem to be appalled and offended by the death and destruction they encounter in the Old Testament and yet are willing to be entertained by mindless violence on our TV and uh, cinema screens or via games consoles. Why is that? And so, as one commentator contends, contemporary Western members have forfeited any right to throw the first stone at the biblical conquest. It's an alternative perspective. But whatever your impression is of judges, it's gritty material. It's earthy. It's puzzling. It's primitive. doesn't appear to be cosmetic in any sense of that word. It is violent. And at times, it's quite bizarre. Again, look at verse 6. Where Judah chases a guy catches him, but rather than kills him, he hacks off his thumbs and big toes. One, to humiliate him, and secondly, to make him ineffective in battle. And just to add another interesting twist to the tale, you discover in verse 7 that this particular guy had, in fact, cut off the thumbs and big toes of 70 kings during his lifetime. And therefore, there is a real sense of what goes around, comes around. And actually, this guy himself acknowledges that God has paid him back for what he did to 70 others. 
And so here in a peculiar and somewhat obscure couple of verses, you are immediately confronted with the justice of God. Judges is an intriguing read. And I think as we go through this series, we are going to be constantly intrigued by the stories that we encounter. Now for many people, Judges is primarily the record and the adventures of 12 heroes of the Christian faith. For example, there's Samson, who gets four chapters in here. Four chapters about the long-haired strong man who has a weakness for women. And who also has a cream named after him in Belfast. But then there's Shamgar. Now who can tell me anything about Shamgar, one of the twelve? He only gets one verse. And the only thing that we know about Shamgar is that he killed 600 Philistines with a pointy stick. That's it. That's all we know. But Judges is is more than a book about 12 rather fascinating individuals. And it's more than a book of gore and unusual events. And so as we, we journey through what was a very difficult, dark and disturbing period in Israel's history that lasts for 350 years, it actually lasts for a quarter of Old Testament history. That's why it's so important we look at this. I do hope and pray that God will challenge us during this series via his inspired and life-altering word. Judges has the ability to speak into our lives every bit as much as the Psalms do. Every bit as much as the New Testament letters do. And the low sermons on Judges and certainly a series on Judges tend to be few and far between. We as a church believe that all scripture is God-breathed. That all scripture is useful for teaching and correcting and for rebuking and for training. So let's, let's begin, and tonight is very much setting the scene, but let's begin by, by setting the book in context. Joshua, that incredible faithful obedient leader, had led the Israelites into Canaan. He had led them into the promise Land. And if you were here at Windsor last autumn, the Preacher's Workshop did a series on the book of Joshua, Life After Forty. And you'll remember how under Joshua's inspired leadership, the Israelites crossed the River Jordan and they began to conquer the land. And the first city to fall was Jericho. And then Joshua moved on from there. And in the end, he actually coordinated or he overseen the defeat of 31 kings and their cities. It took about seven years. And the land was then divided up and it was allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was then their responsibility, and this is absolutely key, it was then their responsibility to clear out the remaining Canaanites in their allocated areas. So Joshua died when he was 110. And so it was over to these 12 tribes to take it from there. And that is how Judges chapter 1 kicks off. So you have the tribe of Judah joined by the tribe of Simeon sorting out the Canaanites and the Perizzites in their particular region. And that includes the guy who loses his thumbs and big toes. And initially it all goes pretty well. Right through to verse 18. So the tribes are taking total possession of the land. They're destroying cities. They're annihilating most Canaanites. But then from the second half of verse 19, there's a shift in the recorded detail. Have a look at this with me. Verse 19 says, They were unable 
to drive the people from the plains. Verse 21. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. Look at verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan. Verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in the Gazar. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. Now all of that was to prove catastrophic. But why was it such a big deal? Did the Israelites really have to eradicate all the Canaanites? Could they not have just let some of them live amongst them. Well, to get our heads around this, we really have to rewind the entire story. We've got to go back before Joshua to Moses. He had led the Israelites out of Egypt. He had led them towards the promised land. Granted, they'd spent 40 years wandering. But as God spoke to Moses about entering Canaan, he issued this explicit warning. Exodus 23. Do not let those people, do not let the Canaanites live in your country. If you do, they will make you sin against me. If you worship their gods, it will be a fatal trap for you. So the Israelites knew God's ways, but for whatever reason, decided to do it their own way. And what you have here is a classic example, and we have been here before. It's a classic example of incomplete obedience. It's not blatant disobedience. They got it more or less right. But they decided to take God semi-seriously. Do you ever do that? Do you ever take God semi-seriously? Like the Israelites, you follow God up to a point. Actually quite far. You're committed to a certain extent. But for the Israelites, it wasn't total devotion. And it certainly wasn't complete surrender. And I want to suggest that the relevance of this reality is timeless. Their challenge 1,300 years before Christ is our challenge 2,000 years after Christ. God still speaks. We still face the choice. Total or partial obedience. And the danger of incomplete obedience today is exactly the same. You compromise a little on God's word and you risk spiritual shipwreck. You tolerate a little sin and before long you may be up to your neck in it. What seems quite reasonable, it's not that big a deal to allow a few Canaanites to live among you can prove to be absolutely lethal for your spiritual well-being. Because look at Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. And what you've got here is God's warning of Exodus 23 plays out. 
The Canaanites did make them sin. And as I've reflected on that during the week, I have found it personally challenging. Because are there areas of my life where I sense or I know God has spoken? Where I know what I need to do, what I need to change, what I need to avoid, what I need to stop, what I need to step away from, what I need to let go of, and yet I can't quite bring myself to follow it through completely. I go so far, and I go quite far, but I don't go the whole way. And therefore I'm in danger of falling into a similar fatal trap. The incredible thing is that that God did give them a chance to get this sorted. Look at the opening verse of chapter 2. Because having not driven all the Canaanites out, an angel of the Lord shows up and brings a real challenge directly from God. He says there in verse 2, you have disobeyed. And as a result, there's going to be consequences. The people will become a pain in your sides. And their gods will trap you. And all of this should sound very familiar to those of us who have been journeying with Abraham. Because whenever we opt for our way, rather than God's way, there are always going to be consequences. There is always an inevitable fallout. Now at face value, as you read on here, the people appear to be devastated by what this angel has said to them. And so there are tears all over the place is what we read. But true repentance has got to go beyond our tear ducts. See, whenever God speaks into our lives, as he often does, and he highlights our incomplete obedience, our sin, then true repentance has got to lead to a change of heart that in turn leads to a change of behavior and attitude. Israel cried. That's what it says. They cried. They even offered some sacrifices according to verse 5. But apart from an emotional moment and a bit of religious ritual, there was no genuine remorse that led to a commitment to change. And so it's no time at all until they are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and they're serving foreign gods. They've missed a moment. There are many times we miss moments. And church history, including local church history, is littered with casualties who have practiced incomplete obedience and who, although they were challenged to repent, have, for the time being, forsaken their God and are now worshipping the various gods of the people around them. You see, the relevance of God's word is sobering. Where are you and I this evening? Is God calling us to genuine repentance and total obedience? Well, back to the story. God couldn't just sit back and let it go at that because that would be a contradiction of his character. And so in verse 14, we encounter the anger of God And it is one of his divine attributes, not one we like. And so it reads this in verses 14 to 15. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders 
who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And that phrase in verse 15, which I've highlighted on the screen, just as he has sworn, it's so important, because what we are dealing with here is God's faithful anger. Again, it's time to rewind here, because look at what God had promised if they choose to disobey him. This is from Leviticus. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. You see, what God promises, again, back to this morning, God does. God is faithful to his word and God's faithful anger shouldn't really surprise us because that is the price we pay for being loved. Now let me tease this out. See, another key attribute of God is his jealousy. Exodus 34, 14. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I've been, uh, I've been married to Glennis for years. We actually celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary last week. I love her. But if I discovered that she was having an affair... How would you expect me to react? And if I reacted by saying, oh well, you win some, you lose some. And if I just left it at that, you'd be shocked. And deeply disturbed and rightly so. Because if I truly loved Glenn, I couldn't be indifferent. I couldn't be disinterested. I couldn't be nonchalant. I should be extremely jealous. I should be righteously angry. And therefore, as one Bible commentator observes, that is the problem with having the God of the Bible as our God. To have a God who loves his people is to have a jealous God. And to have a jealous God is to have an intolerant God. Such is the God of Israel, whose jealous love makes him faithful in his anger towards you. Now that's one to take away and think through. You see, the wrath of God is a reality. We can't duck that aspect of his divine character, but please look at verse 16. Because here's the tension when it comes to the God of the Bible. Because only two verses later, what we read a moment ago, you you read this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. God sends these raiders. God raises up judges to save them from these raiders. So you have the wrath of God on one hand, and then immediately the mercy and grace of God on the other. Despite Israel's disobedience, despite her unfaithfulness, despite her ingratitude, God doesn't walk away. Instead, in his mercy, he raises up judges, deliverers to save the people from their oppressors. God had every right to just abandon his wayward people. They deserved to be left in the hands of these raiders. Forever lost, forever staring down the barrel of an enemy's gun. But the text doesn't end at verse 14. God sends deliverers. And as we're about to discover, he sends 12 of them 
who rescued Israelites, the Israelites from their oppressors. And I realize, and it's been so helpful in how Roy has led us tonight, and I realize you can make the connection of where I'm going to go with this. That God hasn't just stepped into our situation, he stepped down. That we are a rebellious, we are disobedient people, we deserve judgment. Sin is written into our DNA and humanity lives under the shadow of an oppressor. And dark raiders who do long to kill and destroy us. And our sin and our recklessness, it's got to be sorted out. And God has explicitly stated that he will deal with sin and he'll deal with it in his anger. He will not, in fact, he cannot turn a blind eye to the existence of sin in our lives. Judgment is necessary. But God, in his mercy, became one of us. Jesus, the deliverer, entered our world and via his sacrificial death on the cross has provided an escape from the penalty and the long-term consequences of sin. And when we cry out to God in forgiveness, for forgiveness, we're asking for what we do not deserve. And yet because of his mercy, he embraces us, he adopts us into his family, he forgives our sin, he forgives our disobedience, and he rips us out of the enemy's grasp. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message we've got to get out there and share with the world that has forsaken God and currently does worship at the altars of lesser gods. But back to Judges. Why 12 of them? Why did it need 12? And what you discover is this sad, maybe even pathetic, frustrating cycle of events. God's people mix it up. They compromise their faith. The wheels come off, as inevitably happens with sin. And when it all turns a bit sour, they find themselves oppressed. And so in their misery, they, turn, or they cry out to God. And God, who is patient, a God of loving kindness, hears and sends a deliverer, a judge, who would save the people. And then for a time, you read, and this happens time and time, for a time there is peace. But once that judge, that deliverer who God has raised up dies, complacency sets in, disobedience, compromise happens again, and the cycle starts. And it's a cycle we're going to keep seeing all over the place. And I think it's Van Morrison that sings, When will I ever learn to live in God? When will I ever learn? And those are the words that the Israelites could say. When am I ever going to learn to just live in God and be content in that place? The contrast between chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 6, where we're going to finish this evening, is stark. Look at verse chapter 2, 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. What a testimony. 3, 6 reads, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, and they served their gods. Where are we? The society in which these people lived was a society that was characterized by sexual immorality, 
by selfish greed, by rampant materialism. It was a me first and anything goes society. That's how you could describe the time of the judges. For many people, the key verse of the entire book, and this is familiar to us, the key verse is Judges 17.6. It's also the very last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But I reckon it's probably a reasonably fair reflection and summary of our Western society in the 21st century. Me first, anything goes, everybody doing their own thing. And nobody having a right to tell anyone else how to live. And the challenge to be the people of God in our context is real. The temptation to compromise is extreme for us as it was back then. God has sent a deliverer who is also our judge. But the question is, where will we fix our eyes? Will we fix our eyes on him, as the writer of Hebrews encourages us to do? Or will we become seduced by the gods of this culture that are constantly contending for our affection? Will we serve the Lord as those did in Joshua's day? Or will we serve their gods as they did in the day of Judges? Will we practice genuine repentance or will we keep repeating the cycle? A couple of Saturdays ago, I was speaking to a group of scripture union leaders about Josiah. And here's one of the key verses you read about that young king. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone did as he or she saw fit. What about us? Because one of the reasons for looking at this uncomfortable book is that whenever the lessons of Old Testament history are neglected, we risk repeating them. May God help us to avoid that.